Well, um, <clears throat> during this difficult week, I feel like Kentucky's winter found out where I was hiding, um, came to get me. Uh, but uh, if, you, if you haven't heard yet, Ted Cruz and Charles both fled the country. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, I know what Jesus said about the good shepherd. When they see the wolf coming, they don't go anywhere. But I'm not sure what happened. I'm sure there was a mix-up or something. Um, <laughs> now, I've got to give credit to uh, Terry and Becky for uh, noting that, uh, that comparison there. <laughs> Uh, it's great to be back with you guys. Let's pray. Father, show us Jesus today, please. We are desperate for him. Your revelation to us here in the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you for it. Open it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're entering into a study of the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to imagine with me, if you would, that you are a young Christian living, let's just say, in Syrian Antioch, 30 to 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, you've become a believer and you've heard the Gospel, but you're still very young in your faith, and all of a sudden, somebody delivers to your community the gospel of Matthew. And it just so happens that they didn't have, they didn't have a New Testament. And your community, this is the only document of the New Testament, what we would eventually call the New Testament. It's the only document you have. Now, what are you going to do with that document? As someone who has come to believe in Jesus and accepted the gospel, but you're still learning and wanting to know, what's that going to mean to you? And it's not like everybody had a copy either. Everybody, the, the Christian community is coming together and they're listening to this thing read. It's going to matter a lot to you, isn't it? You're going to want to hear every word. You're going to want to pour over it. Well, I want us to do that for the next three or four months with the gospel of Matthew. I want us to, to live as if this gospel was delivered to us and we are now hearing some of this for the first time. We're learning about Jesus, the one we've come to believe in through, through oral testimony. But now we're, we're seeing what's been written about him, the story. And we're going to try to internalize it in that way. Now, uh, just so you know, we're not going to cover the entire Gospel of Matthew. Charles had a great idea a couple of weeks ago that I, I was talking about the difficulty in leaving things out, and we're still going to have to be selective somewhat because we can't cover every verse, but, but uh, he said, well, what if we just covered the first uh, 15, 16 chapters or so and then did the rest next year? And uh, I think that's a great idea. We'll move through some other scriptures as the year goes on and come back to the second half. So we're going to cover, I'll, I'll tell you how we're structuring it in just a minute. We're going to cover the first uh, 16 chapters or so of the Gospel of Matthew. I want to encourage you, if you would, to, to really enter into, enter into this, read the Gospel of Matthew, and <clears throat> maybe even, not many people do this today, but maybe think about bringing your Bibles to church. Uh, and when we put the Bible up on the screen, it, it, but uh, uh, if you bring your Bible to church, you may want to be following along and checking things and, and looking things up, because we're just going to be getting into the Word. So ju just think about that. If it's not too heavy for you, just grab that Bible and, and drag it along with you. Because um, we want to be in the Word together for the next few months. Uh, really all the time, but in the Gospel of Matthew specifically for the next few months. So, 
Let me say a word about the structure of Matthew. This is a little bit more academic than I like to be on Sunday mornings, but I think it will be helpful to us as we go through the rest of our, our time together. Uh, and I'm drawing here on a guy whose name is David Bauer. He knows more about the Gospel of Matthew, specifically its, its literary development, its literary structure, than anybody I know. Uh, so I'm, I'm just borrowing from him. Here's how he structures, and a, a number of others agree with him on this. I'm sorry that's a little bit small. But, uh, you know, Matthew didn't just sit down and write stream of consciousness, if you don't know that already. It's not like he just sat down and said, okay, I'm thinking about this about Jesus and that about Jesus. No, he had a way of, of developing the story. He wanted people to, to get it and receive it. And so, so he structured it. And here is the structure proposed by a number of scholars, and like I said, uh, David Bauer specifically. Um, the first four chapters there to verse—oh, th thank you, whoever did that. Um, the uh, first four chapters are preparation for Jesus Messiah, Son of God. It's preparation for readers to hear about him, and it also shows the people preparing to receive him as he came into the world. The second section there is 417 through 1620. That's what we're going to cover. We're going to stop there here in three or four months. Uh, and uh, that's proclamation of Jesus Messiah, Son of God, to Israel. And then the last part, which we'll come back to next year, is the passion and resurrection of Jesus Messiah, Son of God. And that's chapter 16 through 28. Uh, so you see these markers here? If you look down that set under, under bullet point number two, uh, you have this phrase in the Greek that's a, a rare phrase in the New Testament, and some scholars believe it's a formulaic type thing. It's a kind of a marker. From that time, Jesus began to, and he began to preach about the kingdom of heaven. And then you have, going down from there, uh, three summary passages kind of holding this unit together. And uh, you see a parallel thing that happens then where you divide it at 1621. Under point number three, you have from that time Jesus began to. And he began to, to point towards Jerusalem and talk about his suffering and death then. Then you have three more summary passages as you move through that material. So, so uh, that's, that's how we're arranging it. All three of these first three sections come to a climax with the announcement of Jesus as the Son of God. And that tells us something about what Matthew's trying to do. Matthew's wanting us to see who Jesus is. He's wanting us to see Jesus as the Son of God. And he climaxes each of these three major sections of the book of Matthew by saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, I hope that is not confusing to you. If it is, come and talk to me, and I hope it will be helpful to us as we, as we move through. We're going to take these first four chapters quickly, and uh, then we're going to get in and slow down over uh, the next uh, chapter 4 through 16, however many that is. <laughs> okay. So, how do we hear the gospel in the Gospel of Matthew. Has it ever made you wonder, have you ever thought about why the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels? You know, if somebody were to say to you today, what's the Gospel? You're not likely to say, well, well here, here's a, here it is, Matthew. Or here it is, Mark. We don't usually do that. We're more likely to say, well, you see, you know, it, the, the standard uh, version is, well, Jesus died for your sins, you know, something along those lines. We, we might say, if you're pointing to the New Testament somewhere, we might say, well, well go to the book of Romans, and, and there you'll, you'll get the gospel. And I'm not saying there's not gospel in the book of Romans. There certainly is. But apparently the early church thought that there's something to these first four books that was the gospel in a unique way, in the way nothing else in the New Testament was. And so they said, we're going to call these first four books the gospel. Actually, it's not even gospels. It's the gospel. 
according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark, Luke, John. That's the gospel. Why is that? I'll tell you why I think it is. It's because the story of Jesus is is centrally the gospel. Jesus himself is the gospel. And we cannot get away from that. We cannot make the story about us. Now, the forgiveness of our sins is great, and it's connected to the gospel. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. And the gospel is about Jesus doing something. The gospel is about Jesus coming as the fulfillment of the story of Israel and as the king of Israel who's the king of the whole world. That's the gospel. And the the gospel we receive, we read it in Matthew, this story about Jesus. See, if we understand that, we, we wouldn't be quite so off balance in our, in our Christian faith and in our churches sometimes because we would have said, oh, we're going to absorb the gospel and, and we're going to take the teachings of Jesus seriously and we're going to take the life of Jesus seriously. And, of, of course, we take his death and resurrection as well where everything kind of centers on that. But it's not just a death, especially not just a death that gets my sins forgiven that is the gospel. We have a much fuller gospel and, and, and we need to embrace the gospel that comes to us right now as we as a church enter this together. We want to embrace, embrace the gospel of Matthew, this story of Jesus. And this will enrich our faith and enrich our lives. But what is it that Matthew is trying to say about Jesus? Well, let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry, I left something out. I'm just going to skip that. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, genealogies are boring. I don't, I don't hide the fact that I skim genealogies when I'm reading the Bible. I don't feel bad about that. Uh, I, I think there is some stuff for us to get out of them, but I don't, I, I don't always take my time with them. Uh, but there's a point, and there's a reason why they mattered to these writers of Scripture to have the genealogies there. And, and Matthew specifically is telling us something he wants us to know about Jesus. He's arranged this genealogy to say something about Jesus. He starts out with he's the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. Those are very important people in the Scripture. What is it that Scripture tells us about Abraham? God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That was the promise God made to Abraham. Matthew is saying Jesus fulfills that promise. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Jesus now, fulfilling Abraham. What is it about David David was the great king. What's the promise that was made to David? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There was going to be a king following in David's footsteps who was going to be the king forever. And not only that, he was going to rule over Israel. He was, his, his boundaries were going to be extended to rule the whole world. That was, that was the Jewish understanding. And if you see that in the Old Testament, guess what? That's what Jesus has begun to do. He's the king. He fulfills Abraham. He f- fulfills David. See, what Matthew is doing is he's giving us right at the very front of his gospel, he's telling us who Jesus is. 
by interpreting Israel's story. And he's saying, with this interpretation of Israel's story, I'm showing you Jesus is the fulfillment you've been looking for. He is the fulfillment of all the great hopes, of all the great promises in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus is coming to do. He goes on down in in the first chapter of Matthew. You see Jesus is given the name Jesus. You know what the name Jesus was? You know who he was named after? Jesus is just a Greek transliteration of the word Joshua in the Old Testament. Joshua led the people in the conquest into the promised land, right? Jesus is Joshua. A number of scholars would argue through allusions that in Matthew chapter 2, maybe other places, you, you see Jesus acting as Moses. You got Abraham, you got David, you got Joshua, you got Moses, you got Jesus fulfilling the scriptures. That's what Matthew's telling us, is that Jesus is the one you've been looking for. The people of God have been waiting for something. Oh, here he is. And then Matthew bears witness to Jesus. What he does throughout these first four chapters in preparation, as we saw this section, he brings a number of witnesses out and lines them up to bear witness to Jesus. I'm just going to run through them quickly for you here, okay? You got the witness of the angel who comes to Joseph and says, Mary's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angels saying, God's coming to be with you in Jesus. The magi bear witness to Jesus. The wise men. I'm not going to read the whole passage to save time, but you can see there. The wise men came from the east, and they said, Where has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star. And we've come to worship him. The wise men bear witness. The scriptures bear witness. You have seven fulfillment passages here in these first four chapters uh, of Matthew. And they draw on the Old Testament. Just an example uh, from uh, the the prophecy about Bethlehem. When it's talking about Jesus going to be born in Bethlehem. "From, From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All these fulfillment passages in this section. You have John the Baptist bearing witness to Jesus. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That's an amazing statement right there. (laughs) From a prophet, from a great man of God, I'm not worthy even to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then God climatically bears witness to Jesus at his baptism. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then, indirectly, Satan bears witness. (laughs) He doesn't mean to. And next week, Brother Terry is going to talk to us about this encounter with with Jesus and Satan. But by the very fact that Satan is making such an effort to get him off course, he's bearing witness to who he is. And by the fact that Jesus defeats Satan emphatically, it bears witness to who Jesus is. Be gone, Satan. He was done with him. All of these witnesses to Jesus... And we'll come back to that in just a second. We have to ask ourselves if we're going to be with Matthew. When we come to study Matthew, we have to ask ourselves, who does Matthew think Jesus is? And who does he want the church to think Jesus is? This is not just an ordinary guy. This is not just a great prophet. This is the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of the people of God. 
This is the great king ruling over everything. This is the only son of God. This is the savior of the whole world. This is the one who delivers from sins. This is what Abraham was pointing to. This is what David was waiting for, what the people were waiting for in David. This is Joshua delivering people. This is Moses teaching people the true way. Jesus does not have, like some some holy man, like Jacob in the Old Testament, have visions of angels. If anything, angels have visions of Jesus. Jesus. And come to tell people about them. Jesus doesn't come to work with John the Baptist, who's as great as anybody's ever been on earth. He doesn't come to work with him. He comes to fulfill what John's waiting for. And John says, I'm not worthy to carry his shoes. This is who we're dealing with. Jesus doesn't come to to seek the wisdom of wise men in the east. Wise men in the east come and fall down to worship him. Jesus doesn't come to point us to God. Jesus comes to disclose God. He comes and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And nobody's ever been like that. Nobody ever will be like that except Jesus. And that's the one we're studying today. And what I want to say to you is that uh, when we study the Gospel of Matthew, we want to keep in mind that what we're really doing is getting to know Jesus. That's at the center of this. Don't lose track. Don't get distracted. This is about Jesus. This is about the Gospel. I don't know if I can effectively communicate what I need to say to you today. We have the great privilege of studying Jesus Christ, of knowing him and serving him, of him actually being among us and being our teacher. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. We come to the end of the the first four chapters here, this first section, and we get this statement. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Jordan, (laughs) beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That was what happened for people with Jesus. They saw a great light. People who had dwelled with death hovering over them, all of a sudden it was dissipating. The darkness, that was the great shadow that was cast by death in our world was going away because Jesus was brightening things up. That light has dawned, and that light is still dawning, and people still need that light today. Do you know that there's so much darkness still around us? And people today try to act like, well, we're going to make it better with technology or with science. They've been doing that for years now, but the darkness remains. 
Just look at what's happening to the $150 billion human trafficking industry. In our world today, selling people into sexual slavery. Look at what's happening with child abuse. I mean, we could go on and on with, the, with looking at the darkness around us. People are still needing Jesus. People still need the light to dawn. People still need the church to be a place where they know the light has dawned. Where there's a sanctuary from the darkness, where the death, the shadow cast by death is lifted. And it sounds trite and preachy to say it, but I don't know any other way to say it. Our world needs Jesus. Our world needs the gospel that is grounded in him. And if we don't hold Jesus forward as we preach through the gospel of Matthew, we've failed in our task. That is our central task, to hold this great light forward. I want to read to you a quote from a man named Charles Templeton. I read it here actually a number of years ago when I was hosting a, a youth event here. But uh, I'm assuming you forgot it. <laughs> Charles Templeton was a friend of Billy Graham's. I think he was Billy Graham's roommate. Then he lost his faith because of human suffering and became an agnostic. Wrote a book trying to eviscerate the Christian faith called Farewell to God. Well, in this book by Lee Strobel, you may have heard of Lee Strobel, wrote, wrote The Case for Faith, other The Case for Books. But he goes around interviewing people. He interviewed Templeton at the start of this book to, to hear his objections. And I want you just to listen to this. It's a, a little bit longer reading, but please just, just follow it. This is so interesting. He's interested in interviewing this, this agnostic who's tried to tear down the Christian faith. And eventually he gets around to Jesus, and so he says, he says to Templeton, Strobel does, and so how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. I wasn't sure how to respond. You say this with some emotion, I said. Well, yes. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. 
He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been, so, there have been many wonderful, other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. And so the world would do well to emulate him? Strobel asked. Oh my goodness, yes. I have tried and tries as far as I can go to act as, to act as I have believed he would act. That doesn't mean I could read his mind because one of the most fascinating things about him was that he often did the opposite thing you'd expect. Abruptly, Templeton cut, his, cut short his thoughts. There was a brief pause, almost as if he was uncertain whether he should continue. Uh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most... He stopped and started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. I have to tell you, that's one of the most remarkable testimonies to Jesus Christ that I have ever heard, coming from an agnostic, coming from a person who had left Jesus behind and yet he couldn't escape the person that Jesus was. That indelible mark of the wisest, most compassionate, smartest person who has ever lived. That's the kind of mark that Jesus leaves on people when we actually know him. And we don't want to end up missing him now or ever in the future. We have the privilege of knowing Jesus. We have the privilege of studying this man and learning how to live from this man. So what should we do in light of this great Jesus, in light of this great kingdom, in light of this great gospel? Here's what we get at the beginning, setting the stage for the next section of the Gospel of Matthew Oh, I'm sorry, I must have left it out. Yeah, I didn't put it on there. 4 verse 17 says, repent. This is when Jesus began to preach. From that time forward, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we probably need to talk more about what the kingdom is. For now, we can just talk about it's where God is in charge. And that kingdom, it's not talking about going to heaven when you die. It's talking about God's rule and reign coming present. Jesus didn't just bring new teachings. Jesus brought something into existence. God's ruling and reigning. And all the teachings we're going to talk about in the coming weeks and months, those teachings are attached to him bringing the kingdom, bringing this new life into existence. And in light of that, we repent. I was driving yesterday here in Dallas, and somebody was standing by the road hold, holding a sign, Repent or Perish. And unfortunately, that's what we associate with repentance a lot of times, I'm afraid. Street preachers who are yelling it and fussing it at us. But, but they're missing the context. 
Jesus' message of repentance was a message of the kingdom, of life with Christ. Uh, it, was, it was a message of, well, here's the way one guy says it that, that I like, one, one scholar. He, he says repentance is a radical and joyful turning. It is to renounce the old securities and the conventional values and joyfully welcome the reign of God already making its power felt. This is a joyful turning to Christ. Here's the way N.T. Wright says it. Jesus was summoning his hearers to give up their whole way of life. Their national and social agendas. There's more to be said about that we're not going to get into right now. And to trust him for a different agenda. A different set of goals. This, of course, of course included a change of heart, but went far beyond it. You, do you realize the summons of Jesus in light of who he is, in light of himself, bringing God's reign to us? He's saying, repent. Give up your whole way of life. Turn around. Start to live differently. This is the great invitation, the great summons of Christ. This is the summons we're given in Matthew. Turn to Christ. Have you ever done that? I don't mean have you felt bad for some sins sometimes and tried to stop them. And even been somewhat successful. I mean, have you ever said, because of the greatness of Jesus Christ, I'm relinquishing what I've held dear. And I'm turning to you now. And I will go with you. This is the announcement. This is the gospel. Repent and be with Jesus. But you cannot continue to let life go on as normal. You cannot drift into repentance with Jesus. Not this kind of repentance. Not giving up your way of life. This is a change of thoughts and feelings and values and behavior. This is looking at the world differently. This is planting ourselves on different ground. And say, this is where now I will grow. Because of the brightness and greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message that is held out to us by the Gospels, by the Gospel of Matthew. And let me tell you, it's an ongoing invitation. The disciples were called to it at the beginning, but you'll see as you read the Gospels, they still had a lot of repenting to do as they went. And so it may be an occasion for those of us who have done it to do it again, to enter more deeply into this ongoing life with Christ. Repent, but don't repent because there's a street preacher fussing at you. Repent because Jesus has said the kingdom's here. And it's for you. This greatest individual who's ever lived, who represents God himself, the great king, has said, come with me. Come and live with me. And that's what we want to do. I don't want this to be a study of Matthew over the next few months. I want this to be an ongoing, persistent invitation to repentance and to new life, gospel life with Jesus because a great light has dawned and it's dawning here with us today. Thank God for that.